So as I said, uh, yesterday was the Feast of the Annunciation. We're celebrating it a day late together. And Annunciation is admittedly a strange word. We don't talk about when they, you know, the county cancels school. It's the annunciation of a cancellation of, of a school day. We don't, it's not the annunciation of the, the wedding of Ashley and uh, Seth. So it's a strange word, and we kind of only use it here. And maybe you didn't know its meaning, and hopefully the gospel has made uh, that clear enough. Again, we're nine months from Christmas, but we are interrupted in the back half of Lent by this shocking good news of the Incarnation, which I think we need to hear in this back half of Lent. The angel is announcing, let's get, try, even try to get our heads around this. The angel is announcing that the God of the universe will become a 0.7 millimeter zygote, an inch-long embryo, and then a fetus with tiny wrinkled fingers. You know those wrinkled fingers, they're amazing. Entering this beautiful, entering this brutal world through the birth canal of a nobody from a tiny, impoverished backwater in Judea. Through your body, Mary, the kingdom is finally coming and it will never end. And it struck me on Thursday, I was thinking, maybe it's a little bit of a silly thought, I'm so glad he gave her a heads up. (laughs) So about the incarnation... The author C.S. Lewis said, he said, the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle, the assertion that what is beyond all space and time, uncreated and eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. So the one grand miracle means for us, particularly in this back half of Lent, that Jesus is far more than an exemplar or far more than an ideal. He felt in his bones and in his belly the wilderness that we feel, the wilderness of being human, dependent, hungry, tempted. He experienced weakness and suffering and grief and loneliness and fear. And what the incarnation tells us is that God felt all of that for us. With all of history and geography to choose from, let's just just think about it more deeply. With all of history and all of geography to choose from, Jesus was born under the shadow of the most powerful cultural and political empire in history. In virtually every imaginable expression of vulnerability, familial and economic and cultural and political. It was bad news to be a Jew in those days. And I suppose God could have chosen, if he's choosing from among Jews, the daughter of a middle-class land-owning Jew who's betrothed to the son of another middle-class land-owning Jew. That would have made it easier. Surely God had options. The Holy Spirit could have, you think about this, he could have come and overshadowed Mary on the eve of their wedding day just to, to sort of, you know, avoid the perception of premarital shenanigans. That would have reduced the drama. Maybe it could have just been easier. Many different ways to think about it. Mary didn't have to be full-on pregnant when a Roman census mandated that they travel the 94 miles to Bethlehem. Did the murderous client King Herod even have to know, forcing the Holy Family into exile in Egypt? This is, this is how we believe that the God of the universe chose to come into the world. This shocking, improbable embrace of limitation and vulnerability and messiness and unpredictability and fear and stress. It's how he chose to come. He came into the world as it really is. 
as it had become in the ancient Near East and as it remains today. If we have eyes to see it, and if we're honest enough to admit it, or when our own stories leave us with no other choice but to admit how hard the world can be. The main thing I want you to consider today is this one other form of vulnerability into which Christ came and into which Christ continues to come. The vulnerability of human understanding and belief and witness. Before the risen Jesus ascended 33 or so years later, he chose to put the seeds of this inbreaking kingdom into the ragtag and suspect hands of everyday people. A soon-to-be church full of regular people with all their maddening irregularity. Real people living real lives in the real world. And you know what? That sounds like a bad plan. It kind of does. But God's a genius, right? For the first few centuries, against all odds, those seeds, they just stubbornly pushed through the hardest, you know, they, they bore fruit in the hardest soil that you can imagine. How is that possible? Because they actually believed in the apparent nonsense of God. They saw it at work. They believed in the truth and power of the one grand miracle, the miraculous descent of a loving God into the dust of humanity. That's the message. And Mary embraced it first. In a sense, Mary was the first Christian, if you will. She was unique, of course, in her particular calling, but not distinct in terms of her faith. And I think that's important to talk about. Think about how she responded. And maybe it's kind of a template, if there is one, a two-part template for faith, for our experience of it. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 34, the obvious obstacles, all the absurdities are sincerely confronted. How can this be? This doesn't make sense. The question, her concern, it's valid. And she's saying, how is that supposed to happen? That's not how things work in the real world. I'm a virgin. And she was even confused, you see, and troubled by the greeting. The Lord is with you, O favored one. And she's like, really? Me? She's troubled by this. How can this be true? How can it be true? Because God is going to do it. That's how. That's the answer. Natural conception will come by supernatural initiation. By the same Holy Spirit, the same one who hovered over the deep, chaotic waters of an as yet formless world. And it will defy understanding. That will be the point. It can only be because God wants to, and God will do it by his grace and in his love. But then here's the second part of that template I was talking about here. In verse 38, she replies basically, she says, behold, but really that's a way of saying, here I am then. Look, here I am. I'll serve the Lord on his terms. Become a bondservant. Let everything you've said come true. I accept it. And it's all out there in front of me. And, and the thing is, that the church makes a lot of Mary, and I don't think we can make too much of Mary, really, so long as we understand who this story is really about and understand that Mary knows who this story is about, as unique as she is as the bearer of God. But she is a powerful exemplar of faith. She's giving the whole course of her life to not only an immediate detour, that's not what this is, but to all the unknowns around all the many corners. God only knows what they'll be. Her present and future will kind of become a dynamic intersection of heaven and earth when Christ is formed in her body, when Christ takes his place in her life. So too with us. 
Do you think about your life that way as you put your faith in Jesus? Functionally each day, it is an intersection of heaven and earth. Because this is what it means to believe. Let it to be to me as you've said. That's what we're doing. It's the beginning of embodied Christian faith and witness. It's the beginning of union with Jesus that doesn't answer all the questions. But there's something else with Mary. She gave her future to a story that actually is alien to her immediate hopes and dreams as a soon-to-be wife and mother, right? All that's changing. But her new future would not be alien to the hopes and the dreams and the expectations and the longing of her people. It's wider. Let me say it again. She gave her future to a story alien to her immediate personal hopes and dreams, but not alien to the hopes of her people. And maybe we could dismiss her as young and innocent and idealistic and unable to think in the textures and dimensions of the kind of complexity that she would face. She doesn't know what it's going to be like to do all of this. But actually, I think we get enough in this story, and we get it in the other Gospels too, uh, in, in Mary's response, you know, we get to see that Mary now understands herself as a direct descendant and a direct heir of all those throughout Israel's history who we know responded in faith when God called them to the unknown. These enduring women, men and, men and women in uh, Hebrews 11, who did what? They saw beyond their own tents, they saw beyond their own territories to see a cascading kingdom of God that would never end. And I just think if we're honest, it's increasingly difficult in our era to imagine our lives linked up to the bigger story and to a bigger people this way. Would you agree? It's just harder. Maybe. You know, to, to see our lives with any real congruence, right, between uh, our individual or familial ambitions and the greater good for a greater number of people. To see our faith as, yeah, personal but not private. We struggle to see how our everyday motion of faithfulness links up to an ancient movement of faithfulness, of love and renewal to a kingdom. We have a really hard time with it because, well, it's hard. It's the water we swim in. I talked about this two weeks ago. It's easy for us, even as Christians, to approach Christianity um, you know, with a mix of suspicious and rationalistic and therapeutic tendencies. It's easy for us to do that. We vacillate between the poles of being brains on a stick or hearts on a string. We find ourselves making understanding and certainty and comfort our conditions for trusting God. It's a very human thing, but we make them prerequisites for any willingness to embrace a story that's much larger than our own personal fulfillment. And of course, again, this isn't always conscious. I mean, we all do it sometimes and to some degree. All of us. It's the cultural water we swim in. And honestly, I think of that as just another chaotic void, if you will, that over which the Holy Spirit still hovers. And this hovering sent from heaven to bring divine order, to bring coherence and confidence into our earthly stories and into our common life. The struggle's real. And the struggle's not new. So it's... St. Anselm, a monk, a philosopher who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, home team, uh, in 1093, he famously said, for I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. And many of us have heard that before. But then he goes on to say, he said, for this also I believe, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. 
That, that, that's challenging for us, I think, uh, isn't it? Unless I believe, I shall not understand. We, you know, it's tricky. It's kind of backwards for us. No, if you can help me understand, then I will believe. But actually, that's the backbone of Christ's teaching. And before him, it's the legacy of Israel that trust precedes evidence. You see it all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And he ratifies it in John 20 by telling Thomas and his disciples, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. It's from the Messiah's mouth. Sometimes, I think, and to some degree, we struggle to believe because we find it nearly impossible to liberate our trust from our terms. Does that make sense? Understandably, our experience of the church or our unanswered questions, they make us feel stuck or stubborn. But this is exactly what Jesus came to deconstruct, a world built on our terms, on our terms, a world severely limited by our terms and suffering because of our terms and not his. Like Mary, we are called, friends, we are called to live lives of confidence in the absence of certainty. We are. Faith calls us to embrace our own vulnerability and our own limitation. This kind of vulnerability is actually the lifelong journey of learning to trust. Not only our present and our future to God, but our past too. That's hard. How do we make sense of it? Because that's where it can be really tough, living haunted by the things that can't unhappen. You ever feel that way? That aren't easy to make sense of. We've got to bring them forward somehow. And so what I want to say, you know, is, you know, as it turns out, I think Mary does provide the anthem of Christian faith and witness for us in every generation. She says, how can this be? Well, let it be to me. Let it be to us. How can it be? Let it be to us. And, you know, I think of what Mary must have been thinking and feeling after the misty air of angelic visitation cleared, which that's how I imagine it. It's kind of smoky. It smells good. The angel comes. It clears, and she's hit with this sudden, oh, no. <laughs> Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is, I've got to tell Joseph. But, again, God's a genius. He's taking care of that. He's going to tell Joseph. I think of how it must have felt for her to get that first wave of nausea and that first kick, and it's like, okay, it's on, it's happening. To feel the fear of exile in a strange land in Egypt, to face the loneliness of being widowed, because that happened too. Worrying about the relationship between the increase of Jesus' popularity along with the trouble that followed it. She's watching this happen, the difficulty that she had of understanding all along what it meant for her firstborn to be her Messiah. But most of all, I think of this, of how, you know, again, 33 some odd years after the Annunciation, there she is, hanging weakly and helplessly on the Apostle John while her firstborn is hanging naked against a graphite sky, and he's bleeding out. And he's choking out. And she's wondering, what now? What now? We lose sight of Mary in the story after that hideous moment at Calvary. She doesn't show up in Acts. I would imagine she was among those to whom Jesus appeared in the 40 days before he ascended. Uh, but still he's gone. 
He's gone, and he did what he came to do, and now she must carry on in faith. She must keep carrying him on in her life and with her body in faith. And that's what we're called to do, come what may. As with Mary, you know, friends, we're not called to carry this alone. We're not. We're, we're called to it as a people, traveling the long and the bumpy road together in an exile that's not unlike Mary's. Guarding, we're guarding the deposit of truth and divine love within us against the often subtle, the very real tyranny of sin and of disappointment, discouragement, and of idolatry. There are obstacles, fears, seeming impossibilities. So let me just close by relating this to my favorite film. It's called Interstellar, uh, written and directed by my favorite director, Christopher Nolan. And at first blush, it comes off just like a science fiction story that more than half of you do not want to see nor hear about. Uh, but it's, it's applauded by real astrophysicists for exploring the theories how, uh, about how deep space and wormholes and black holes, they actually affect the dimensions of physical space and the relativity of time, which was a concept that Einstein came up with, right? It's heady stuff, I know. But the thing is, Interstellar is really a story about love. It's a story about the transcendent and mysterious power of love. Not romance, mind you, love. If you like a movie that can break your brain and break your heart at the same time, Interstellar is for you. And I hope I don't ruin too much of it for it. There is a scene in that movie that would make me sob if I let it. I never let it. Some of you love to sob, watch it, sob. I just cry a little bit, just trickle. Um, it's, this movie's set basically in our time. Earth is dying because there's a blight that has come and is destroying vegetation. And when you destroy all the vegetation, you lose both food and you lose oxygen, right? It's happening. And we find out in the movie that they've already sent 10 explorers uh, into deep space to try to find another home, to try to find an inhabitable planet. And it appears that only three of those 10 are still alive. They're still getting some signals from them. And now this other crew at the center of our story, at the center of the movie, is going after them. And they're hoping that they're still alive and that even one of the three planets has promise. The crew includes Cooper, who's an expert pilot, played by Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. right. And Brand, uh, an astrophysicist, played by Anne Hathaway. They're both Oscar winners. They're fantastic. And their journey goes super sideways during their, first, their visit to the first planet. And now they've only got enough fuel and enough time to visit one more planet, not all three. They have to choose. And it's hard. And one looks more promising based on all the data they're getting, but the astronaut who's marooned on the other, if he's still alive, is Dr. Brand's boyfriend that she hasn't seen in years. And everybody's arguing for the science-based decision. The world's depending on them. And Dr. Brand, who is a scientist, scientist, they set her up this way. She admits her conflict of interest, but as a scientist, here's what she argues. She says, love isn't something we invented. It's observable. It's powerful. It has to mean something. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. She said, I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. How is it that we still love people who are only a memory? 
Love is the one thing that we're capable of perceiving, she says, that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it. Still, they choose against her. Things go sideways again, and when all seems lost in the belly of a black hole with five dimensions, I can't explain all of that, uh, but one of those dimensions, so to speak, is the mysterious power of love. It shows up, and the, the powerful and the painful a memory that Cooper has of leaving his 10-year-old daughter on earth to try to save the earth, it becomes this dimension by which he's able to communicate with her across time and space, across two galaxies in over 30 years. I'm not going to spoil the movie any more than I already have. Watch it. Let's talk about it later. But it's so powerful. And it turns out that Dr. Brand was right about her plan. That she was right about love in the movie, but also in reality. Because of love, friends, the one grand miracle has changed everything. Because of it, as Lewis said, what is beyond all space and time, uncreated and eternal, came into nature, came into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. So, if you hear me say anything, hear this. As with Mary, love wants to be born in us and for us and through us for the world. That's why we're here. Divine love has been poured across time and space, yeah, into our vulnerable hearts. That's how it works. That's plan A, and there is no plan B. And we have only to believe in its power and promise. And that's what we, we long to, to believe that the Lord will help us believe. And that's why we hold our hands in, in vulnerability and limitation to receive the God who came to us in this way and promised to be with us in this way. And we have only to say with Mary, let it be to us as you have said. Amen? Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to receive it. Let it be to us according to what you have said. Help us, Lord, in all of our terms, in all the ways in which we're navigating the complexity of life. Lord, help us to continue to be found believing. And when you find us weak and struggling in that, we pray for your strength and your power. And we pray that together we would lift each other up in faith. When one is weak, that the other might lift them up. This is our hope and this is the way you designed it. And you are a genius, so keep working, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.